0: Welcome to Mysteries and Meatballs, episode number two The Nine Fingered Killer. I'm your host, Tiffany, and my writer and co host, Stephanie, is here with us.
1: Hello, everyone.
0: Disclaimer this episode of Mysteries and Meatballs contains graphic details that may be offensive to some listeners. As in all murders, families were affected, and we don't take this lightly. Our hearts go out to all of those involved. This is a murder mystery that takes place in summer of 1952. It takes place at Crater Lake National Park in Southern Oregon. Crater Lake is a beautiful mountain lake nestled down in the Cascade Mountains. It was formed by the now collapsed volcano, Mount Mazama. The lake is 8,000 years old. Thousands of tourists and local visits the national park each year. If you haven't seen Crater Lake, you must. At least Google some images. It is breathtakingly beautiful.
1: I remember hiking down to the water years ago. It was so amazing how clear and pretty the water is. It's not too far from here. Maybe we can go back there this summer?
0: Absolutely. We definitely need to go back. Well, on July 19th, 1952, two businessmen from out of town wanted to do a little sightseeing and up to Crater Lake from Klamath Falls. It was a sunny, warm, clear day, 71 degrees, and a great day for a summer drive. Charles Patrick Culhane, age 53 of Detroit, who was a national sales manager for General Motors, and his associate Albert Jones, age 56, the manager of the San Francisco Zone Office for GM, had been visiting different GM locations. They decided that since they didn't have a meeting until Monday, they would go up to Crater Lake for the day. They planned on meeting a couple of business associates from Klamath Falls up there that afternoon. Frank Eberlin and John Vaughn were those associates, and they happened to be operators of a Klamath Falls auto parts firm. At 11.30 a.m., Charles and Albert hopped in their green 1951 Pontiac
1: Sedare.
0: I'm sure that was one hot rod. Definitely stood out rolling through K-Falls and up the highway
1: yeah i bet especially because they were big wigs at gm it's it's a 1952 so that pontiac is shiny new in
0: 1952 the year the new york yankees won the world series championship it was a different world technology had not taken off there were no cell phones and to place a phone call you had to dial the operator most towns had pay phones this was a phone where you inserted change to place a call In 1952, it cost a nickel to be exact. There was no internet or personal computers. People still hand wrote letters and used typewriters. Milk was still delivered in glass jars by the milkman. The turnoff to Crater Lake is six miles past a small town, Fort Klamath. The population in 2010 was only 88 people. Fort Klamath was an old military outpost where the famous Captain Jack is buried. Today, it is pretty destitute and closed down. Having a gas station, mechanics garage, and a cafe back then, it was just a small, tight-knit community in the middle of nowhere. About an hour or so past Klamath Falls, and at least a half an hour or so before Crater Lake National Park. Back to that warm, sunny, summery day, of July 19, 1952, Charles and Albert hopped in their green 1951 Pontiac Sedan. Just shortly behind them were Frank Eberlein, John Vaughn, and Frank's 13-year-old son, Alan Eberlein. The gentlemen closed down the auto parts shop at noon that day because it was Saturday, then loaded in the car and left town to head up to meet up with Charles and Albert at Union Creek, a popular fishing spot near the lake. As the three were driving there, they noticed the green Pontiac Sedan that belonged to Charles and Albert. It was parked on the side of Highway 62 at the Annie Creek viewpoint. The right front door of the car was left open, as if they had just hopped out for a second to take a look at the view. The keys still in the ignition. The gentleman's luggage and baby brownie camera was still in the car. I had no idea what a baby brownie camera was, so we looked it up. It was a special camera with a mottled plastic body and a direct vision optical finder made by Kodak.
1: This was the first camera to make photography accessible to everyone.
0: Alan Eberlin, then 13, reached his hand out and through the grill, touching the radiator of the car it was still hot to the touch. It was hot enough to yank my hand off. The car couldn't have been there too long, Alan said when interviewed by police. The three of them had just figured that Albert and Charles had just wandered off to take a quick look, so they all just hung around waiting for their return. After an hour passed, they knew something was not right. Frank and John left to go report the executives missing, leaving Alan, Frank's son, the 13-year-old, with a green Pontiac, just in case the gentleman returned. No cell phones, remember, so these gentlemen had to drive about 45 minutes back to the town, Fort Klamath, to use a payphone to make that call.
1: So that means that Alan, the teenager, would have been in the car for around an hour and a half to two hours alone.
0: One car came through crunching gravel and then took off really fast, Alan said. I didn't think much about it then at the time, but now that I think about it, I wonder if that was them and they were coming back to get the car and saw someone inside it. And adios, let's get out of here, Alan Eberlein remembered in an interview in 2002. Little did they know, the gentlemen would never return to their car. Rangers began their search by dropping into the deep Annie Creek Canyon. Many of the searchers were young adults. One searcher was 17-year-old Rex Ash, a farm boy from Missouri, who spent his summers at Crater Lake. We were working west from the highway, all about 20 feet apart. I thought, oh lordy, there they are. On July 21st, 1952, two days after the two executives had went missing, a trail crew member would find their dead bodies. They had been murdered. About a quarter mile south of Highway 62 in a heavily wooded area. It was really hot and they had started to bloat. I had never seen dead bodies like that, Ash recalls. As Ash yelled, two dozen searchers ran over to the crime scene. They had been shot execution style in the head. Their mouths had been gagged with their own neckties. Their shoes had been removed from their feet, and one pair had been stolen. All their cash and watches were missing. In addition to the single bullet wound they each had, They also both had bruising in their groin area, and Albert Jones also had a fractured skull. Charles Calhoun was found lying outstretched on his back, with his right arm laying across his chest. Albert was about five feet away. His feet were pointing at Charles' torso. He was also lying face up, with his legs outstretched, but his arms were laying along his sides. Both men's dentures were found in the front shirt pockets, and their socks on their shoeless feet were clean, as if they never touched the ground. The searchers had soon gathered around where Ash had found the bodies. This definitely interrupted the terrain and the crime scene, even though no one touched the bodies. Remember, we are back in 1952, where law-, law enforcement did not have any technology. There was no DNA testing. The only high-tech investigation tool was fingerprints. There were no computer systems to link agencies together either. Another searcher, John C. Owings, aged 22 at the time, remembers one of the trail crew taking out his camera climbing around and through people to take photos. He was taking up-close photos of the victims, even of their faces. He stated that he was going to sell them to a crime magazine and make a fortune, but the FBI ended up confiscating them. An FBI agent arrived at the scene at 3.27 p.m ash then 17 the searcher that found the body and owings stayed with the body until the coroners arrived at dusk how horrible two men from out of town on business just trying to enjoy their saturday what went wrong was this a crime of opportunity did someone follow them up there could it have been a mob
1: hit all we really know is that two successful businessmen were robbed and killed. What about the car, though? If it was a robbery, wouldn't they steal that sweet-ass ride? Speaking of that sweet-ass ride, you won't believe this.
0: A man? Who gave his name as J.D. Harney of 536 Plum Street, Medford, Oregon, which is over the mountain about an hour from Annie Creek, where the victim's car was found. This man made a long-distance call from a payphone at a Southern Pacific Railroad department in Medford. At 1.15 p.m., J.D. asked operator Phyllis Haas to put a call through to the garage, the only garage in Fort Klamath the small town near Crater Lake. Haas told FBI officers at the time that the mound sounded like he would take her head off because she wasn't able to put the call through to the Weimer garage until 1 to 45 p.m. That was 30 minutes after the initial call to the operator. Back in 1952, when someone was on the phone, the line was considered busy and you had to wait your turn. Not like today, how we have call waiting. When this man, who called himself J.D., got through to the garage, he told Myrtle Weimer, whose husband owned the garage, that a friend of his named Jones was in the hospital. He asked her to pick up his car at the end of Annie Creek Canyon and store it in the garage until Jones got better. He stated that the keys were in the ignition. Oh my God! Who would have known about the car? where was located in the fact that the keys were in the ignition except the killer
1: especially that he knew the owner's name really blows me away albert's last name was jones
0: the call was placed at 115 and the bodies were found sometime shortly after that the fbi arrived at the crime scene at around 345 Weimer immediately called the authorities medford police immediately responded to the depot where the call was placed to look for the man who called himself jd harney when the police arrived the man was gone the name and address that he had given the operator turned out to be fictitious a baggage man at the depot described the man who placed the call as slender five foot seven sandy hair, wearing a bright red and yellow sport shirt. The man who placed the call from the depot, who called himself J.D. Harney, was never found. The fingerprints that were lifted from the payphone and the change inside were never identified. Back then, all the police work was done by hand and there was no computer that they could put the fingerprints into to identify. They lifted them with fingerprint dust and a tape like sticky paper and then looked at them through a magnifying glass to identify matches.
1: Things really have advanced since then. Now they can do so much more with technology to investigate and solve crimes
0: retired medford officer bob allen said the fbi which had jurisdiction over the murder due to it occurring in a national state park swooped in and took over medford officers just didn't have a lot to do about it except sit around and speculate for a long time he says we always thought it was some mob deal from back east just did not sound like anyone from around here. The guys we dealt with were usually safe burglars and bad check writers. In the days following the murders, the FBI interviewed over 200 park employees, including a then 24-year-old man named Lincoln Linz. He was a truck driver for the Crater Lake Lodge at the time the murders took place. Lincoln Linds believes FBI investigators discounted his eyewitness account after branding him a smart aleck. In an interview years later, Lynn says, I feel for these two guys that lost their lives and I also feel for the follow-up of the murder case. Should've sp- spired a lot different, said Linds. now a retired accountant living in Portland. I don't feel like they got justice and that hits me right between the eyes, Lenz states. Lynn says that he was driving canned goods to the lodge July 19th, 1952, when he saw two men in work clothes taking two white-collar types into the woods, where the executives' bodies were later found. As he continued to drive slowly to the lodge, he learned that he heard two bangs that sounded like firecrackers. Later that day, the next linds was followed and harassed by two scruffy looking men he's come to believe those two men were the killers the older one was the most distinctive he wore a beaded belt that spelled out ralph he had a tattoo of a bikini clad female on his right forearm he was missing a finger linds coincidentally missing a finger too This guy seems to have a lot of information about this crime. He seems to know where it happened. He saw the victims with the potential murderers in the same location where the bodies were found and can describe who did it. You would
1: think that this would be a huge break in the case. Definitely has to be connected. But why did the FBI discount his statement? Was... What is it is likelihood that he and the killer only had nine fingers? According to Joe Kenda, a retired homicide detective from Colorado Springs, Colorado, who has a show on Discovery Plus, there is no such thing as a coincidence.
0: Another detail that stands out for me is the beaded bout. A lot of natives bead and wear beaded things. There is a native community not far from Fort Klamath. I wonder if this man wearing the beaded belt could have been from the Chilliquin area.
1: What about the speeding car that the teenager Alan remembers? Lynn stated he saw the man, the killer and the car. I wonder if they were the same car.
0: Lynn's was asked if he was mur- Lynn's was asked if he murdered the businessmen. He replied, absolutely not, but I would sure like to find out who did. He was offering a $1,000 reward to anyone who helped identify the nine-fingered killer. Horan, a late officer, was fascinated by the case, according to his wife Ruth from Klamath Falls. He talked about it and looked into it for a couple years. The officer suspected that killers were John Wesley Cole and Kenneth Moore from Chilliquin. Moore had been convicted of binding and robbing two trappers. A woman informed OSP troopers that Moore had confessed these murders to her late husband.
1: What? That is crazy. You just asked about if the killers could be from Chilliquin area. In
0: 1962, Moore and Cole were found frozen to death 4.4 miles east of Highway 97. He suspected them from the beginning because they were outlaws and they were around at the time of the killings. Her husband was at peace even though the case was never solved because the two he suspected were responsible, they ended up dead anyway.
1: Tell me more about this guy, Lens. I am still curious to know if the FBI ever took him seriously and investigated the information that, that he gave them.
0: I don't think they ever did. In everything that we read about him, everyone who interviewed him seemed to just not believe what he was saying. If they would have come back to me, I could have shown them where the killer's car had been parked and beer cans that were there that might have had their pr- fingerprints on them. Lintz said details kept coming back to Lintz after the initial interview after the lodge closed in the fall and Lintz went back to the University of Oregon he tried to contact agents several more times Lintz claimed that his calls were never returned it was just one of those damnable mysteries that just couldn't be solved he said after reading an article on unsolved murders in 1969, Lentz called Oregon State Police yet again now 17 years after the murders took place. He was wondering if the FBI had handled his information as that of a coup. Oregon State Police Captain George Winterfield stated he felt that there were some things possible that he did not report to the FBI and things he felt the state police should know about. Linz described the two men that harassed him and the car that they were driving, a 1935 or 36 Pontiac Black in color sedan that had been parked some distance away from where the victim's bodies were found. A few weeks later, he saw a similar car in Gold Hill. Winterfield, 72 at the time of the interview, and retired, forwarded his report to the FBI, but never heard back. This seems a little strange, that the FBI never returned calls to Lynn's or even to the other law enforcement agencies.
1: I wonder if they just didn't care and didn't want to be bothered with this case, or if they were covering something up.
0: Lynn seems to keep his story and his details the same over and over, and even years later.
1: I agree. Another thing I can't get out of my head is the fact that not only does Lynn seem to have a lot of information on the murders but he and the man he believes to be the killer both only have nine fingers
0: right what if Lynz is the killer and right under the fbi's nose documents show that fbi agent agents aggressively pursued the crater lake murders for years they tested 167 guns in a vain attempt to find the murder weapon according to the fbi files they tracked down reports of gold pond watches across the nation they interviewed several men who tried to sell brown oxfords agent terry larson who was stationed in medford spoke to lintz in 2011. Larson declined to discuss the investigation but did say that if Lince's tale was credible it would have been taken into account back in 1952. You don't ignore major pieces of the puzzle Larson said there is no statute of limitations on murder.
1: No shit there is no statute of limitations of murder. That is why They should investigate Lynn's story and continue to solve this case, even if it did happen years ago.
0: Maybe they could even add the fingerprints to the database and see if there's a match now. In 1994, Jones's granddaughter, Alice Sims, found letters that her mother had written about the murder of Albert Jones, her mother's father, to the Mail Tribune. Virginia Coda, Sims's mother, wrote the letters and never sent them. In the letter, she had referred to a letter she had received from her father before his death, which included this cryptic passage. Things are so bad now, they could not get worse. In 1990, when Coda wrote the letters, she believed that she understood what her father had meant. Forty years late, I remember what my father had said in his letter. I know who was responsible for my father's murder. I know the, mur- the murder is. I just don't know the name. But I know the organization that arranged for my father's death. I did call the local FBI, but they said the case was too old to do anything about it, Coda wrote in the letter.
1: Back to there not being a statute of limitation of murder, and here they refuse to do anything about the cold case, this is starting to frustrate me.
0: I don't understand how some law enforcements, they pride themselves on solving crimes, and others just don't go the extra mile. It sounds to me like the agents assigned to this crime suck. Since seeing that letter, Sims, a 51-year-old state clerical supervisor living in California, has contacted hundreds of people and spent thousands of hours researching the murders. She is convinced that the notorious Santo gang did in her grandfather. I think they just saw the fancy car, and it was a case of robbery, even though people say that there was more to it than that. I think it was Jack Santo, Emmett Perkins, and Barbara Graham and their gang. The motive was always robbery. The trio was executed for other murders back in 1955. FBI reports show that on the day of the murders, Santos paid bills and ate at the Chat and Chew Cafe near Auburn, California, which is more than 300 miles away from Crater Lake. After everything I've read about this case, this theory that Sims has about a gang, it just doesn't add up to me. It's like, hmm, nothing that anyone, even Linz or the business associates, describe.
1: The gang also had a solid alibi so far away, so at this point, I'd have to agree.
0: Sims spoke to Linz at one point and didn't believe his story, stating he seemed peculiar. Seems like everyone that interviewed Linz thought he was strange.
1: I wonder if he was strange like weird strange or if he was strange like a murderer strange.
0: Spring of 2002, Cheryl Ousey, 47, was taking a class at Rogue Community College when she heard about the Crater Lake murders. She spent three months obsessively investigating the crime for a research paper. Her extensive report is now part of the files at the Southern Oregon Historical Society. Calhoun was a big mucky muck with the company and their problems with the union. Then it was a hit, Elsie said.
1: Looks like a mob hit could have been a possibility.
0: She gave a presentation on the murders in July of 2002 at the Klamath County Museum in Klamath Falls, Oregon. About forty seniors showed up. The last to walk in was a suspicious-looking man in a long sleeve shirt, she said. Aussie's friend noticed the man because the way that he studied the names in the guest book so intensely. He was missing a finger. <gasps> Thanks for listening to our podcast, Mysteries and Meatballs. We would love to hear from you. Email us your feedback, ideas, stories, and recipes to mysteriesandmeatballs at gmail.com. If you would like the recipe, classic lasagna, recipe number two, send your request to our email. Ciao. Ciao!